Please be advised, this episode includes topics that could be triggering for people who have experienced sexual abuse. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Sean Sullivan filling in for Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. Thank you for joining us today. I just want to begin by saying that I cherish Michael Silverblatt, and it means very much to me that he trusts me to host the show today. The author today is Paul Tran, whose poetry debut is All the Flowers Kneeling, which I am blessed to be talking about um, with Paul today. It's an amazing book. Such amazingness doesn't come out of nowhere, and I would like to hear a bit about um, your evolution as, as a writer, if I may. And hello. Hello, Sean, and thank <laughs> you for having me. I feel equally, um, and if not selfishly, more blessed because, I don't know, I grew up in a community where things like this do not happen for kids like me. So thank you for for letting me be in this space with you. Um, the poems in this collection emerged nine years ago, in 2013, in May 2013, when I was assaulted my junior year of college in my dorm room and had to reckon with my own history of childhood sexual abuse at the hand of my father and the presence of sexual violence throughout generations of women in my family, from the French Indochina War to the American War in Vietnam, and how my grandmother, my mother, all these women have found their ways to endure. And in that moment of crisis, I had to find my way as well. And poetry was certainly that vehicle. And I didn't always write the poems that we will now find in All the Flowers Kneeling. I was a spoken word poet when I first began. And that was in part because it seemed like the coolest, you know, coolest club on campus. I learned that poetry can live in the body. And then eventually I learned that poetry can live on the page. And not just that it can, but how. May I say that's all reflected in the book, that you do live up to what you're saying. I do feel you inside of the book. And I do feel grateful to be with you as I read it. And again, it's called All the Flowers Kneeling. Sometimes I hear people speak about poetry as if it's difficult. And I would like to speak about how accessible and understandable this book is and how it can grow with you. So the book has four sections. I would love for you to read the um, first poem of the first section, which is called Orchard of Knowing. Absolutely. Orchard of Knowing. Into the shadows I go and find you, gorgeous as your necklace of 999 index fingers, all of them point at me as the kill to complete your mission, to return to your kingdom by returning to your king a thousand human sacrifices. You chase me, you swing your sword, Yet I remain beyond your reach. I'll surrender, I tell you, when you detach from your received idea of purpose. So you do. You set down your weapon. 
I didn't, that I didn't mean the blade in your hand. I meant the blade in your mind. That's Paul Tran reading Orchard of Knowing, which is the very first poem in the book. And what I like about this poem so much is that it orients me towards the construction of the book. It makes me aware of myself as a reader. It makes me aware of you as a writer. And it makes me aware of what we're heading into. One of the greatest writers of all time, Shahrazad, um, has uh, a titular poem that comes in two sections um, in the first part of the book and the fourth part of the book, um, Shehrazad, Shehrazad. And it would mean so much to me if, um, if you'd read the first section of it. Yes. Can I, can I also say, Sean, that Orchard of Knowing, this is a, it's a Buddhist folklore. There was once a brigand who was exiled from his homeland, and in order to come back, the king said, bring me evidence of a thousand murders. And so the evidence would be an index finger from each of those murders. And this brigand had successfully killed 999 people and was then intercepted by the Buddha. And it's our story of transformation, of conversion, of redemption. And it was the first story I remember my mother telling me. And so when I went into the arena of putting this book together, I wanted the first story she ever told me to be the first story I told the world in my first book. But also, the poetry nerds out there will recognize this is a sonnet. There are 14 lines. There's a rhyming couplet at the end, hand and mind. But it doesn't, the content, this Buddhist folklore, is not your everyday sonnet tradition. At least not on the surface. I was taught that every poem needs to make an argument about its making, why it exists, not just as a piece of literature, an expression of someone's life or interiority, but why it exists as an object of the art that it belongs to. There's a cheeky argument burgeoning being made about the diversification of these received Western forms that happen on page one. And I promise that with that, we go to page five. Scheherazade, Scheherazade, waking again to the Spartan furnishing, brass knobs and coat hooks, Curtain, moth, nod, and yellowing plastic mattress atop a twin frame photograph of me and my mother turned away. Book from a class on empire and literature that told the story of a storyteller who evades the end, awaiting her each morning by giving the king not her body, but her imagination each night for a thousand and one nights. What humiliated me as I relived my death in that room without sunrise wasn't my desire for light, but my desire for more darkness. That's Paul Tran reading the first part of Scheherazade, Scheherazade. Scheherazade is the storyteller in 1001 Nights and one is the greatest storytellers of all time. And what I like is that you're sharing a narrative idea with Scheherazade and that the texture of this book is being informed by 1001 Nights. If the story about the Buddha and the brigand was the first story my mom ever told me, Scheherazade must have been second. 
And I think like so much that she told me at that young age, I took it for granted until those memories came back when I needed them most. She told me the story of Scheherazade because it was our story of survival. That storytelling is how we endure because the narratives we offer ourselves are not just about what happened, but of ourselves, who we were as we confronted fate, as we took revenge on circumstances, as we imagined lives that we could not have imagined before. Who did we have to be to do those things? And for my mother, she does not cleave to a single version of her own historical past, her stories about growing up in Vietnam, about the war, about how she came to the United States. They're always shifting. And I think they shift because there's something that she still feels after all these years, the imperative to evade, to deflect from or deny, because doing so allows her to persist. And who am I to take that away from her? But in contrast, I think my life as a poet has meant I keep trying to tell and retell the story of what happened and trying to get at that truth. That happens when the poems go through revision. That happens when I find I write another poem on the same topic. The title, Scheherazade, Scheherazade, is both to reflect the fact that there's one half of this poem in the first section and one half in the last, but also that my mom is a Scheherazade of a certain kind and I'm a Scheherazade of another kind. Beautiful. It's such a bright and full book. I wish that, frankly, we could go over each and every poem and each and every thread that's woven through it. What I would like to um, do is grow the idea of your mother and father, which is explored so well and so fully in the second section. And um, if if you wouldn't mind to read um, Chrome on page 24. Absolutely. Chrome. Years he lived alone on Montezuma Road, delivers newspapers during dawn's darkest hours. The marine layer hangs like gunfire over the Gulf of Tonkin, optical illusion. How cleverly the war begins in his 93 Mazda MPV. We sail I-15 south as though it's the Tubong River. Flee Hoi Ang, cinnamon forest barricade, viscera flooded streets, American soldiers peeling his house apart, straw by straw, his uncles wearing Nothing but name tags around their necks, lying in a ditch of sawtooth rocks, flies spewing from a missing eye. We grab donuts at a panaderia in North Park, a boombox beneath La Virgen Cus Gomo La Flor, while I probe a glazed exit wound, wedding ring he never gave my mother, too poor for love, too ruined for ritual. I dance with him, my feet atop his feet, shadow in his shadow. Our song doesn't end, even when it does. Even when Yolanda pushes a bullet through Selena's back, we keep going. We remount his chrome motorboat as daylight singes sheets of warm air, revealing another imitation of heaven. 
my father in the rear view mirror. Sky, I go blind, scouring for the sun. That's Paul Tran reading the poem Chrome from All the Flowers Kneeling. And so that is a bright and full and bursting poem that is just far beyond, you know, journalism. There's true art taking place within this poem. And I'm learning so much and being immersed in your perspective within it. I would love to hear if you could speak further about um, what is being described in this poem. Yes. One of the first poems I ever wrote, Sean, was a persona poem from the perspective of my father and why he molested me from when I was four to when I was seven years old. And it stopped when I was seven years old because he took me to a KFC one Wednesday afternoon. This was 1999. And he left me there with a two-piece meal and a biscuit and a $5 bill. I never saw him ever again. But I, years later, had these questions I still needed answering. Why did you do what you did? What did you think that would give you? How have you benefited from it all this time? And did you think I would be yoked to that single story forever? One of the things I received was this really unsettling sense of his own humanity, that he was, as so many refugees may have felt, disenfranchised and powerless, stepping into a country where they did not know the language, where they had little choice over where they lived, what jobs they worked, even who they loved. And so perhaps he did what he did because I was the only realm in which he could exact his control. Or it was a realm in which the control exacted had substance. And in learning that, whether or not it's true, it's all theory, but theory derived from writing poetry. It's why I think poetry is a vehicle for the production of knowledge. That knowledge I learned made it so that he, in my imagination, could no longer be the villain. I knew I also had to make him a more complete human being for the reader as best as I could. And so that is where Chrome steps in. We began with years of his loneliness. No one saw him deliver these newspapers, except me. I rode in the back of that van next to the papers. I would hand them to him and he would walk out of the car and put it on the steps of, you know, the businesses. And it was a Vietnamese newspaper. And he's one of so many invisible workers. I'm Sean Sullivan, filling in for Michael Silverblatt, and you're listening to KCRW's Bookworm. I'm talking with Paul Tran about their new book, All the Flowers Kneeling. We'll continue after this short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. I'm Sean Sullivan, filling in for Michael Silverblatt. This is Bookworm, and I'm talking with Paul Tran about their new book, All the Flowers Kneeling, which is an explosive debut. And I 
as a reader at this point, you're thoroughly gripped. You're thoroughly immersed in the book. You're being swept away. My book, All the Flowers Kneeling, my first book of poetry, it has four sections. And the first section begins in the immediate aftermath of the speaker, who is myself. I, I say the speaker, but the speaker is certainly me. It's right in the aftermath of having been raped my junior year of college. And there are poems in the first section where I'm filling out incident report forms, where I'm having night terrors. When we move to the second section, however, we go back in time. And it's as though I'm watching a movie of my mother's life, she who also is a survivor of sexual violence, how she not only overcame that, but overcame escaping Vietnam and resettling in the United States and starting a whole new life for us as a single parent, as someone who worked three jobs. And by the time we get to the third section, this is when my speaker, also myself, has to take matters into their own hands has to finally decide how will they live? How will they think about living? And what will their life look like now that they are going to make choices? Earlier on in the book, I say my purpose is precision. And so when the book takes up its own themes, its own rhetoric, if you will, and revises it, when the reader walks with the speaker through each section of the book, they're walking through a mind that is changing itself and hopefully growing up. As a reader, you truly do grow along with the writer. Um, you, you do experience within you the same feelings that are being described as, as natural for reading, of course, especially when it's vibrant Um fantastic poetry so we're going to speed ahead to the second part of um shahrazad absolutely and, and and may i add for the listeners that i think of every poem like a game and so i've built it to be something that the that the readers can play and um i hope that the more they play the game the more they get out of it so here's the last section of Scheherazade, Scheherazade. Section 14. Always, I'm told, there's more to know, to feel, to do. Today, before dawn, I'm listening to the water as I wash and dry and stack each spoon atop the other. Amused, by the exactitude of their design, how such things exist in this world where unbelievable things occur and recur without design or exactitude is no longer, at least to me, a matter of how, but of belief. Years ago, I learned of the painters who painted over their paintings. Historians call it pentimento. I call it being alive. Listen, you will understand me. That's Paul Tran reading the 14th section of um, Scheherazade, Scheherazade. And whew, I am swept away by that one, um, both hearing you read it and when I read it myself, I, I'm I'm utterly gripped. Um, my heart is gripped by by the writing now. But I would appreciate so much if you would um, speak about the point we've arrived at. 
this is the anti-penultimate poem of the book. And the penultimate poem is a poem called Copernicus, where I basically say that for a long time, I thought I was special because of what I suffered, or that I was special because I suffered. And I realized with much humiliation that that suffering is not what makes me special. Survival is what makes us special. In this juncture, this poem I just read, my hope is that it reflects something very important I learned from Toni Morrison, whose book, The Bluest Eye, has remained the most important work of literature I have ever read. And it was given to me by my high school English teacher, Miss Jan Gabay, National Teacher of the Year, 1990, for the record. <laughs> and she, I think, knew I had to read it. And I think because I read that book, I was able to recognize what my father had done to me. I, Sean, I hadn't... I knew the word rape. I knew the word... And I just... I could not, until that m juncture, articulate my life in those terms. But reading The Bluest Eye helped me do so. But that is also not what The Bluest Eye is about. The Bluest Eye, to me, seems to be about the power of ideas. How the idea that if Pakola Breedlove had the bluest eyes, she could overthrow the yoke of her own history. She could belong. She could be loved. She could have everything she ever wanted and deserved. The terrain of ideas, the terrain of knowledge, has always been and will always be my battleground. Logistically, the kids in my community weren't expected to graduate from high school or go to college. And that way is this logistically the battleground for me. And now it's my battleground as an educator, helping my students move, you know, from middle to high school to university to whatever um, educational platforms they pursue next. But in my work, in my art, I tackle the ideas that I think have distorted and malign our lives, that go unnoticed or uninterrogated because they're so commonplace. And I write to not just dismantle, but to do away with them. And if I cannot do away with them, then the poems still exist as primary source documents, if you will, of a singular mind working its way through that interrogation. The poems are the mind at work. We can't ignore the notes, which are so wonderful that I know my emotional partner in life, um, Keisha, I, 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 I recommended to her that she read the notes first, and she did, and then she became in love with the book before she even began it, just through the notes. What's so vital to me is that I'm not reading a book about a character. I'm reading a book about a person. You're revealing yourself to me while I'm reading this, which is what I most want out of books. I think writers like myself have been tested and forced to prove our proficiency as poets. And it is important not to forget that we are also inventors, that we intervene in the field that we work in, um, and that we have been intervening in this field long before the idea of America even existed. We're not just proving mastery. We, we have been proving our ingenuity. 
since forever. And so in this first book, I wanted to make that clear and to do so by inventing a poetic form that intervenes in one of the most regarded received Western form, the sonnet, which has endured since at least 13th century Sicily. And the sonnet has 14 lines, typically ending on a concluding couplet that reaches for certitude, closure, um, revelation. This form that I made, the hydra, only has 13 lines. We're doing away with the end. We're saying no, no more of that closure, no more of that certainty. We will rest in doubt. We will keep moving in our, we will rest in unrest and keep moving. The sonnet also belongs to a larger sequence called the sonnet crown, where the final line, that 14th line, is typically repeated verbatim as the opening line of the next sonnet which says to me there's the belief that a lesson from one experience or one chapter of life is taken neatly and cleanly into the next. That wasn't, that wasn't my experience as a survivor of sexual assault. I, I didn't have conclusions, first of all, and I didn't have this neatness of importing, you know, what I learned from one place and time to another. I think there are as many ways to represent the experience of survivors as there are ways to survive and as there are survivors. This is how I put my, myself on the page. And I hope that it inspires other poets, poets of color, queer and trans poets, you know, poets who are refugees, undocumented poets, poets of disability, poets who have been relegated to the margins to realize we do not live in the margins. We are very much the center. To close the show, if you wouldn't mind reading from um, starting uh, instead in the second paragraph to um, psychological impulse right below it. Instead, by moving from a known beginning to an unknown end, the Hydra enacts the experience of survivors embarking from the immediate aftermath of trauma or extremity toward an imagined future. The rules of this nonce or invented form, therefore, emerge from the belief that poetry isn't expression, but enactment, and also from the belief that every formal imperative must be driven by an emotional or psychological impulse. Paul Tran has just read from a note on I See Not Stars, But Their Light reaching across the distance between us. And again, I would go on and on about this if I could, Paul. It's a phenomenal debut. You've landed in a big way. I'm lucky to have met you, and I would talk for much longer if I could. But I'm going to have to close now, and I just want to thank you as, as it goes from the bottom of my heart for today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. And it means a great deal to me to be here with you. It's so mutual. It's beyond mutual. I've been talking with Paul Tran, author of All the Flowers Kneeling, published by Penguin Books. Thank you for joining me. I want to tell my listeners that due to the, pan- due to the pandemic, we're each taping remotely, so you may hear unusual sounds. You can visit kcrw.com bookworm for a podcast of today's show. Also available at all pod- 
all podcast services and on demand with KCRW smartphone apps. If you haven't already, become a KCRW member at join.kcrw. Special thanks, huge thanks to regular host Michael Silverblatt, kisses to Michael, kisses to Bookworm show collaborator Alan Howard, kisses to engineer PJ Shahamet. I'm Sean Sullivan. Join us next time on Bookworm. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.